This is episode 54. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Welcome to another edition of All Hazards. In this episode, we get a visit by a FEMA Federal Coordinating Officer, or FCO, who's deployed to a couple of the more trying scenarios. Disasters that are completely different. One was natural, the other man-made. What were the challenges of each? And what advice would he give anyone facing both immense humanitarian and political pressures like he did? Let's get started with our conversation right now. Yes, with me today is a gentleman by the name of David Samaniego. He is the Federal Coordinating Officer for FEMA, responding to and recovering from, if you will, during this California wildland fires uh, disaster that has hit Northern California. Of course, that affected Shasta and Lake Counties. David, so good to have you here. Thanks. I know you're very busy, but uh, thanks for taking a few minutes to come talk with us. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Absolutely. I know you have a lot of experience. From what little I've been able to find out about you, the people who have worked with you have a lot of really great things to say about you. You're very thorough, detail-oriented, positive. How did you get into this line of work that you're in now as an officer with FEMA? Right. Well, it all started um, when I started as a firefighter with Cal Fire. Um, I was a, a, a summer firefighter, and I was going to college, and I was starting to be an accountant. An accountant? An accountant. Um, well, that's not as exciting as... No, it is not. No. But I love being a firefighter during the summer. I helped pay for college. And then after college, I was an accountant, and I realized I did not like to be an accountant. Big so, difference. Yeah, yeah, yes, it was. And I missed being outdoors, and, and I missed you know fighting fire. And, and so it took me some time, but I went back and, and, and became a permanent firefighter for Cal Fire. All right. So where did you grow up? About 40 miles from here. I was born and raised in Placerville. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. I could see how that would be tough going from growing up in an environment like Placerville working on some fires, being a firefighter, and then studying to be an accountant. There has to be some kind of uh, warning flag that went up. Was there a warning flag, or did it just sort of dawn on you one day? No, it just dawned on me one day that I wasn't happy, and I wasn't getting the self-gratification on my daily activities. So I I searched back, and the only two things I really enjoyed was uh, the Army ROTC and being a firefighter with, uh, with Cal Fire. So I decided that I wanted to be a firefighter. Very good. Very good. When we were walking here into the studio, I mentioned something about, you know, how many times have you, you know, been in this building? And you said, oh, yeah, I was back here in 2005. The new, the building was relatively new back then. That's correct. Um, I had transferred as a fire captain from El Dorado County over into Sacramento. Cal Fire, as you know, has a, uh, a dispatch center here for, for the state. And so I transferred as a fire captain for dispatch. The walls around here seem at least uh, semi-comfortable for Yes, you. they do. Very yeah, familiar, yeah. huh? Coming home. Yeah. I want to find out a, a little bit about what is going on right now uh, with the recovery process for the uh, wildland fires um, that we're still in the recovery process and probably will be for quite some time. But you uh, just recently came in as, as FCO. How did that happen, and, and what can you tell us now? 
that's correct. Um, I was assigned um, to the California Wildfires as the FCO in the middle of September. I took over for uh, FCO Bill Roach, who was running from the very beginning. Um, I had transferred in within FEMA from the Midwest in, in Chicago office over to California because I wanted to get back home. And it happens that uh, at that point in time, there was, there was an opening for, for me to take over for, for Mr. Roach, and I did. Mm. So I've been here for, for about a month. Okay, so this is a, a permanent assignment. Well, it's a permanent assignment to um, FEMA Region 9, which is out here in, in the West Coast. But uh, this assignment in, um, it, in here at the Wildland Fires is temporary in nature. Okay. okay, so when this is all done, then where do you go? Then I go back to Oakland, California. Okay, all right. So you're not too far down the road. No, then. I'm not. Uh, obviously, uh, FEMA Region 9 headquarters is there in Oakland. So let's talk about, for those people who don't know, uh, what is a federal coordinating officer? What do they do? A federal coordinating officer is a uh, national cadre. Um, right now, there's about 40 of us throughout the, um, the country. Each um, of the FEMA 10 regions has a number of federal coordinating officers. And basically, we are uh, in charge of a uh, federal declaration. So once the president approves a federal declaration, then uh, one of us is appointed as a federal coordinating officer to um, oversee the operation. Once the president declares this disaster, then you folks come in from whatever the local region is, in this particular case, from Oakland area, region nine, and you assist the state uh, with the recovery process. Because we're already in the process of, of helping the locals. You come in and, and help us and the locals. That is correct. Um, and as you know, that uh, this is a three-tiered response. The first is the locals that have the primary responsibility for for responding to a disaster. And then the state comes in and helps them and fills their gaps. And at, at a certain point in time, the state may be overwhelmed. And that's when the governor then request a federal declaration or federal assistance from, from the president. David Samaniego is the current federal coordinating officer whose job is to co-manage the entire July wildfires response and recovery operation in Northern California. How does he handle that kind of responsibility? Plus, it's like trying to win the Super Bowl with a brand new team just a couple weeks before you know the, the kickoff. What does he mean by that? Sounds like the ultimate quarterback or head coach and the big disasters that had lasting impacts on him and what he learned during those very different scenarios. Plus, his advice for emergency responders and managers, whether it's your first or 15th deployment. Let's get back to the conversation. What is it like to have that kind of responsibility placed upon your shoulders? Obviously, you're relying on a lot of training, experience. How do you handle everybody, everything, because I've seen it, it's, there's a lot to manage. What helps you manage it? I mean, what helps you get your head around everything? How do you do that? Well, first, you got to put it in the context of what it's like. Um, we don't have a, a regular team that, that assists us. So um, our team comes together from all parts of the United States. Some come from Midwest, East Coast, Southwest, everywhere. So and some familiar and some not so familiar faces. Mo mostly not familiar faces. Okay. It's, it's like trying to win the Super Bowl with a brand new team just a couple weeks before, oh, you know, the, the kickoff, you know, so you got to put this team together and you got to quickly analyze and evaluate your strengths and weaknesses with this team and then adjust accordingly. So and at the same time, 
we're in the middle of this of this disaster fight. So it's it's um, it's it's quite uh, stressful. So observational skills, paramount. Yeah, paramount. sounds like because you've got to assess, like you said, strengths and weaknesses, and and maximize your team. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Man, what are some of the things that you have to deal with day in and day out as an FCO? Well, um, we get our our marching orders from the governor of the state in which we're here. Um, the governor has priorities and the governor has objectives. Um, that's the reason why we're here, right? And so it, it is very important for me to understand what the governor's priorities are and the objectives and then formulate a, a, a cooperation with the state to formulate a, a co-located team. Because I always say this is not a FEMA team. This is not a state team. This is a, a shared responsibility and trying to adjust those two teams moving forward. One side couldn't do it without the other. No. State versus... No. No, couldn't do it. No. You know, we have to understand that we are here, FEMA, on the invitation and the request of the governor. Mm -hmm. Now, how is it working in California versus, let's say, Michigan? Um, are there different dynamics? Obviously, the weather is a little different. But what are some of the other things that are distinctly different from working in California versus, let's say, Michigan or any other state? It doesn't have to be Michigan. Well... Um, that's an unfair question because, you know, I spent most of my career with the state of California, so I know ah. California pretty well. Okay. Um, so um, I know its strengths and weaknesses in emergency management. Um, and a lot of the other states that I go to, I don't know, right? I, I've never worked there. I've never lived there. So i, I got to learn their capabilities in, in a moment's notice. And, and, that, and that at times could be difficult to assess. But with California, I have a pretty good understanding mm -hmm. of their capability. Okay. I've seen some of these folks, uh, some of your colleagues, fellow FCOs and, and others, who spend a lot of time away from home, a lot of time, especially if they're cascading disasters around the country. How difficult can that be at times? It's extremely difficult. Um, most of the FCO cadre members are um, of older, their kids are out of the house. Um, I'm one of the few that has kids at home. And uh, my oldest is 20 years old, and uh, she summed this up um, on her senior year at a, at a graduation party. And I was gone most of her senior year. And she says, Dad, uh, do you know that you only spent six weeks, you know, during my academic senior year? She was keeping track? Yeah. Oh, that's tough. That's tough. I feel bad as it is when I go away for a week or two. And, you know. Yeah. And, and, and that year was a, it was a very busy year for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. And especially when your daughter looks at you. Is your daughter's 14, mine's 14. They look at you and they say, Dad, you know, come well, on. Well, my oldest daughter is 20. My second daughter is 16. And my, my boy is 14. Oh, your yeah. boy is 14. Okay. Yeah, right, right. Well, either way, somehow you're able to do it. Um, tell me about that drive, that motivation to get past those things that you miss and get the job done top notch. Well, I I just separate the two, right? You know, um, as a federal coordinating officer, I have a, a mission, and it's extremely paramount that, that I stay extremely focused. And I, when I'm in the office, that's what I concentrate on. And then the after hours is I dedicate to my family, whether it's phone calls or FaceTime. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to separate those two. So technology has made things a little bit better. Yes, it has. Yes. FaceTime, you didn't used to be able to do that. Nope. 
No. So I can see, you know, everybody's face and be part of a, you know, of an event, mm-hmm. you know, even remotely, you know, like a robot, but, you know. Hey, but at least you're, yeah. you're getting to see it and Absolutely. sort of participate in it. Yeah, that, that's technology is wonderful that way, and it's only getting better. Mm-hmm. So let's then talk about some of these big disasters. Uh, FEMA is obviously um, associated with the big disasters because those are the ones that really take place on a national and international scale. FEMA has a very important role in those. And they're usually natural disasters. Sometimes they can be man-made. Oklahoma City, 9-11, those kinds of things. What are some of the disasters that you've been called to partake in? I've been uh, assigned to uh, various disasters um, over the course of five years that I've been working for FEMA. But there's two that stand out in my mind. Um, One, um, the Flint water crisis, I was the FCO for that. Um, That was not a natural disaster. Um, And next one, I was uh, assigned to Puerto Rico um, during uh, Hurricane Maria. Two very different disasters. Absolutely. Let's talk about the first one, uh, the Flint water crisis. Uh, For those who may not have been paying close attention to the news, uh, just sort of briefly explain what the problem was and and how FEMA got involved. So Flint water crisis um, started because uh, Flint, uh, at that point in time, got his water from the Detroit water system. And uh, they signed a 30-year lease, I believe, and it was going to expire. And so they were in the process of also building their own uh, water system. And um, they could not extend their lease for a couple of years until, until they finished their, their water system. So they decided to uh, um, use the water from the Flint uh, River. And um, the water was not properly treated. Therefore, what it did is the, the water, the chemicals in the water stripped the, the liner where it was located in the piping system, and that caused to expose um, the water to um, harmful uh, elements. And so... Um, Talking about lead. Correct. Right. In part, lead. Yeah. And so uh, lead was piped through um, the, the uh, Flint water system. And so it became a man-made disaster, so to speak. And uh, the governor of Michigan asked for emergency declaration um, to assist uh, bringing potable water into the Flint um, city until they could find a more permanent solution. Okay, so they couldn't handle such a massive task on their own. Um, I'm not sure if they could or not, but they chose to ask for a uh, federal assistance. Okay. So eventually then, because FEMA got involved, a presidential disaster declaration was made or not? Uh, Not of uh, a declaration, an emergency declaration, which is limited in scope than than a full-on declaration. Uh, Basically, uh, we can only bring in potable uh, water, bottled water, water filters, and, and cartridges um, to the city of Flint. So it was, it was very narrow in scope. That uh, disaster was um, not FEMA-led. It was led by Department of, of uh, Health and Human Services. 
there was a principal federal official assigned to that um, because it was a health, health crisis. Mm-hmm. And FEMA was in charge of the commodities mission of bringing in bottled water into the uh, city of Flint, and that was my role. Okay, so this is one of the two that stood out in your mind as disasters that have really had an impact on you. In what way did this Flint water crisis impact you? Well, I, I realized at, at that point in time that um, this was a, um, a political firestorm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, a presidential year, 2016, um, and uh, it got a lot of uh, uh, attention. We had to deal with the, the public media as well as deal with the operation. That is not an easy position to be in. No, it, it, it was not. What were some of the hurdles that you had to, that you came across, and how did you get over them? One of the things that um, that FEMA does is uh, it's because we are uh, there on, on the request of the governor, we work through the state um, to mitigate the, the potential uh, harm that's caused from a disaster. And um, the mayor was actually very affected, so I could not go, you know, through the mayor. I had to go through through the state in order to help the, the city. So that was that was one element that was sensitive because mm. um, they were from opposing political parties. Uh-huh. Uh, so that that caused some some concern there. But I got to say that the, the the state of Michigan and the governor. Um, they were really trying to rectify the situation. Right. They were not trying to make a political situation out of this. It was it, it, uh, the entities there were really trying right. to remedy this. And, and I that, could, yeah, it, I could see that from from day one. It's never easy. And as FEMA, your job was to simply provide the fresh, healthy water right, right. to the public. That seems like that shouldn't have been. Um, as difficult as it may have ended up. No, it, you know, in essence, it was a simple operation, bringing water. Right. Yeah, not so simple though, huh? No. Okay. We'll get into the other disaster to which he deployed and how local politics created unwanted obstacles in just a moment. Also, he made a statement years ago uh, during the Gulf War that kind of stuck in my mind. Who was that man? And what was it he said that apparently had a long-term impact on his own strategies? All right, back to our conversation with David Samaniego. Let's talk about Puerto Rico, a completely different kind of disaster there, uh, a natural disaster. Hurricane comes through, wipes out the entire island. When did you, first of all, find out that you were going to be involved? Well, that's interesting. During that, just before um, the hurricane hit, um, there were a number of disaster operations throughout the country that we were ordered to shut down. Uh, there were public assistance um, disasters, and they were mature, and, and most of the disasters could be taken over from the state. So we were ordered to turn over these operations to the state and make ourselves available for deployment. So there was, I can't remember the number, maybe eight or so disasters throughout the country that, that did this, and I was one of them. So I uh, turned over my entire staff to uh, headquarters, and they deployed them to, um, uh, through either Texas or Florida or Puerto Rico or the Virgin Islands. And, and I sat idle uh, for a few days, and then they moved me over to headquarters where I was working in headquarters um, helping organize long-term recovery. 
Uh, I was there for about 10 days, and the uh, FCO um, in charge of Puerto Rico gave me a call and said, are you bilingual? I said, well, yes, I can get by in Spanish. He said, okay, I want you to be here tomorrow morning. So I um, was assigned as the uh, sticking point of contact and liaison for the mayor of San Juan. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you're right there. You are right there. Right there. At what point did you arrive, and what did you see? I arrived uh, about 10 days after Hurricane made landfall, and I saw devastation like I've never seen it before. It was it was a war-torn area. It just seemed like a, uh, it was just terrible. It was heartbreaking to see. No power anywhere. Um, roads were still covered with debris. There was um, no power in, in the uh, airport. Uh, I arrived by, by charter. It, it was it was devastating. How did you get your equipment there? How did you get your equipment that you needed? And I say you, I mean both you personally and FEMA as a whole. How did you guys manage an operation where everything was just completely destroyed, including the airport? It, it was it was flown in or shipped in. Mm-hmm. Helicopters, and, uh, most mostly fixed wing and, okay. and barges that came in. Wow. Yeah. 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 When you come across or you come to a scene like this, you know you've got so much ahead of you. What's the first thing you do? Prioritize. Yeah, you have to prioritize um, um, your 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 needs and your resources. Mm-hmm. Now, to do those resources uh, change as time goes on. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, they they always change, um, and uh, depending on on the cycle of, of the disaster. So initially, they're willing to give you anything and everything that you ask for as well, much as they can. As much as they can. Yeah. It was very limited. You, know, you have to understand that uh, Puerto Rico is, you know, there's a large body of water between mainland U- U.S. and Puerto Rico. So um, everything that's, that comes in has to be, for the most part, shipped in. It so takes time. It takes about a week or so, you know, uh, sometimes less. Mm. So, so if you could say one thing that you got that you were most thankful for what was it probably cell coverage oh really yeah okay that's one thing that um that uh, we learned is um we were um taken off uh, we had a limited number of seats on charter flights to puerto rico right and and we're mostly moving in first responders that sort of thing and we were taking off uh, folks from you know the the private uh, cellular service. Those are the folks that could have brought cellular service back up quicker. Mm. Uh, we just didn't realize that we were, we were bumping them off, you know, for for us. I see. Yeah. So it and some, something we learned from from then that we don't do okay. going forward. So yeah. communication is paramount. Whatever it takes, get that communication up and going. And yes. As widespread as possible. That's correct. Right. So what about? Um, the one thing that you wish you had gotten that you didn't get? When I got there, um, like I said, I was there about 10 days afterwards, and, and everything I needed I had. Good. You know, Yeah, I didn't have you know running water or, or hot water, but that was fine. You know? What was the biggest challenge for you there then uh, to, get the, to succeed in the mission that you were given? Well, my mission was um, to embed myself with the mayor of San Juan. Um, she was very vocal. Uh, with the federal response and, and, and the governor of Puerto Rico's uh, response. And so 
Uh, my job was was to um, be the liaison between her office and, and FEMA, and um, to understand her, her shortcomings and and then to explain uh, the the FEMA process, um, how we did things. Was that a challenge for you then? Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. She obviously wants the most and the best for her country or for her city, right? Absolutely, and and um, she, she does, and and you know, and uh, she wasn't shy about that. But you have to understand: not only was she the mayor of San Juan, she's also a survival. Uh, I mean, uh, a, a survivor. Yeah. So she was, you know, out of her home. Mm-hmm. She was living in a shelter, and still trying to manage the city. Not an easy thing to do, to say the least. No. And here you are trying to explain to her how how FEMA does things. And I would get the impression that no matter what you told her, it wasn't going to be enough. Well, you know, you know, people are suffering, you know, so it, I, I, I understand. Mm-hmm. I think we all do. Yeah. Uh, for you, how long were you there? I was there from uh, early October through late April. Oh, wow. You were there a long time then. Yeah. How were things when you left? Better. I would hope so. Yeah, better. I know. There was, there was consistent power through most of the, of the city. Uh, the roads were, were cleaned up. Um, um, the kids were going back to school. There was, there was food and water in the grocery stores, so it was better. Yeah, healthier. Healthier, yes. Yeah. I'm trying to put myself into your position there and trying to imagine um, the conditions that you had to deal with every day. I would assume that as time went on that the conditions got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. That's correct. The longer you're staying there, the more fatigued you get, but at the same time, things are getting a little bit better, so that helped. Right, right, yeah. Were you able to FaceTime or talk with your family while you were there? No, FaceTime didn't work very well. Yeah, you know, I bet. You know, just, but I was able to call. Oh, good. Yeah. At least you got to hear the kids. Correct. If you were going to talk to another FCO, a, a newbie, someone who had never been on a disaster before but was being deployed, what kind of advice would you give them? If, they, if you were to be their mentor, what would you tell them about their first deployment? I would tell this to, to anybody, and, and whether it's their first deployment or their you know, 50th deployment, is have a decision matrix or a cycle. Everyone has one, right? And, and whatever it is, stick to it. Don't deviate from that from that decision cycle. I've been using the same one since I was a firefighter, right? It's, and I just I can do it over a few seconds, or I can do it over a week long period. But use the same decision cycle over and over, and do not deviate. Once you deviate, you're off track. So you're talking about sort of your own personal planning P. Exactly, exactly. Your own personal planning P. So P. Tell me about what goes through your mind. You need to make a quick decision. What is your planning P? Well. It all starts back when I learned this back in when I was, you know, a young engineer. You know, first, you know, you you gather information, you assess the information, you uh, you form options on 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 the information that you, that you gathered. You pick what your best option. You staff that option, and then you execute it. You monitor and you reassess and do the thing all over again. Mm-hmm. You can be done within a few moments. You know, during the during a CPR situation or a structure fire or a wildland fire, or it could be over a long operational period, um, that would take a week or so. And that sounds like it takes practice. 
It it does it does, um, and um, what happens is when when people get uh, disorganized is when they go off their their own cycle, and and everyone in emergency management has one whether whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of it comes down to instinct. Absolutely, and you know yeah. experience. Obviously, the more you do it, the more you're putting it to the test in a real world situation. Muscle memory, correct. Well, I think that's great advice. Yeah, I think a lot of just sort of a lot of us act on autopilot, um, and. You know, we think we may be going through the right processes at the time, and maybe we are, but maybe we aren't. But I don't know that anyone has ever verbalized, you know, having your own sort of personal planning P, but but it does make sense. It makes sense, and maybe we're doing it automatically anyway, but it sounds like you're talking about really sort of consciously going through the steps, even if it's in a nanosecond. Right, and and usually you don't need to think about it. Right. But times when, like, I was in the mayor of San Juan or Flint, um, I started to, to to get off track here. So I go back to and consciously force myself to do those six steps that I, I normally do. If you were going to identify someone who has helped you in the past, a mentor, someone who taught you something that you still maybe rely on to this day, do you have someone? I, I do have um Several, but there's one that um, Colin Powell, um, mm-hmm. General Powell, he he made a statement years ago uh, during the Gulf War that kind of stuck in my mind. And uh, he says, uh, you're never going to have 100% information at the time when you need it. In best case scenario, you may have 60 or 70% of the information available to make a decision. And the rest, the 30 40%, has to be filled in by, by um, experience, training, and good intuition. So that kind of made a lot of sense to me. Yes, indeed. It, yeah. it, it does make sense. And unfortunately, he's right. You're never going to have all the information you need when you need it. Right. And if you're waiting for that information, then you're not going to make a decision. That stuck in your mind. Is there something that uh, you would like to pass on to folks who are just getting into emergency response, emergency services? What would you tell someone who was looking to get into this line of work? Um. I'd say it's, it's a wonderful line of work. Um, I, I wasn't planning on working for FEMA after I retired from CAL FIRE. Um, I just uh, happened to walk into it. You know, my wife was trying to get on with FEMA, and she says, look, honey, look at this this, uh, this flyer. It meets your training, your experience, your education right down to a T. And there was a federal coordinating officer over in Chicago. So I applied, and six months later, here I am. Mm-hmm. But she was right. It did fit my, you know, my, my experience and training education um, one thing that I would tell folks is, is, is it's, it's a wonderful career helping people and um, that's the kind of person that I am by being a firefighter and then also ex Peace Corps um, volunteer and, and now with FEMA you know that's that's what I do okay so everybody carries a phone with them and on their phone hopefully there's a little bit of music what's your go-to music uh, 70s rock 70s rock all right <laughs> Not the three tenors? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, top three rock and roll bands from the classics. Well, that's, um, I guess one of my, my favorite ones is, um, you know, it's, it's the Eagles. You know, I, I like the Eagles, you know, and then Fleetwood Mac. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's probably my, my favorite. That's your go-to? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Rumors. Come yeah, on. Yeah, come on. One of the right, greatest yeah. albums of all time. Absolutely. All right, one more. One more go-to band. Um... <clears throat> Another uh, band that I like, um, Redbone. Uh, uh, they're a Native American band. They have they had uh, one one hit, um, and uh, um, 
I always have them on, on my uh, my iPhone. I like that. Yeah. That's different. Yeah. I thought maybe you were going to say Boston or Aerosmith or something, yeah. but uh, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Redbone. Yeah, Redbone, come get your love. I like that. Excellent choice. <laughs> out of the blue, just pulled that out. <laughs> well, listen, is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we wrap this up? Yeah, so one thing I learned over working for CAL FIRE and FEMA over the last 30 years is... Um, is I see a lot of folks, you know, wrestling with a decision um, and trying to get some more information because they don't want to make the wrong decision. And and you're gonna make a wrong decision. There's 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 just no way around that. Um, so I say make a decision and move forward with that decision. And if it's a bad decision, you can always adjust fire. Okay, because obviously you're having to make decisions constantly every day, uh, multiple times a day, and at times with very little time to make that decision yeah. so go back to colin powell theory yeah there you go david samaniego fema federal coordinating officer working right here right outside of mather and uh currently in our studio with us here at mather hq headquarters for cal oes david thank you so much thank you for your time it I was a pleasure it. to meet you and thanks for taking the time out of your day my pleasure sir so as we all know technology certainly makes things a lot easier as long as you get a signal, right? And that was one of the challenges he faced there in Puerto Rico. In fact, they all did before they could even get power restored or humanitarian supplies into the area. That area was just devastated. And with the Flint water crisis, that continues to make its way through the recovery process. Both of these could take quite some time before they're just a distant memory. Well, I want to express my sincere thanks to David Samaniego. We hadn't met before he stepped foot into the studio and he certainly wasn't sure what to expect, but he rolled with it, and that's what a pro FCO is good at, just rolling with it. And thanks to you for listening. We appreciate it. Be sure to subscribe to All Hazards in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or really anywhere fine podcasts are served. Also, be sure to check out this podcast on our Cal OES page, which is oesnews.com. One more time, oesnews.com. If you have any questions or comments or some suggestions for topics or folks that we should sit down with, send them to me at questions at caloes.ca.gov. One more time, questions at caloes.ca.gov. Hey, for everyone here at Cal OES, I'm Sean Boyd. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.